I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. I'm here in Barcelona at the World Conference on Lung Cancer with Dr. Benjamin Vess, who is a medical oncologist and the head of the thoracic oncology program at the Institut Gustave I'm sorry, at the Institut Gustave Roussy in Villejuif, France, uh, really Paris, essentially. Yes. Uh, and uh, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate that. No, thanks for the invitation. Hello. Uh, now, you are a medical oncologist, uh, correct? Uh, and uh, the reason I ask is that I recently learned that in France, most of the people treating the patients with lung cancer are actually not medical oncologists, but pulmonologists. Is that right? Yes, it's correct. It's, uh, it's something, uh, well, it's a pattern you will, you will find in a few European countries. Uh, France is like that. Um, Germany, the Netherlands. Uh, so, uh, in this country, you train as a pneumologist and then you extra train for two additional years to have the license to prescribe chemo in your own um, uh, area. So, it's, it's mostly the case for lung cancer and for uh, GI cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I'm one of the few, I come from Gustave Roussy, where there is this, um, uh, d- let's say, different generation of medical oncologists. Thierry Le Chevalier was my uh, previous uh, uh, mentor, um, he is, is a medical oncologist, and then Soria, and, and uh, so, yes. Let's say more and more medical oncologists are interested in lung cancer. It's true that we still have a, a, a slightly different view compared to pneumologists because the background is different. I think that it's uh, it's 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 really um, you can combine this view and have uh, extra ideas. It's you always compare to the background, so I always think what is the strategy in lung cancer, in, in uh, breast cancer, in head and neck, how can I translate this uh, to, to lung. For example, um, uh, in head and neck cancer, you start with chemo, and if you have a response to chemo, you will give radiotherapy, and if not, you go for surgery. So, you will do the resection for the non-responder. Now, you go one level down in lung, and because of the Betisher trial, people tend to, for the borderline resectable stage 3, for example, they tend to start with chemo. If there is a response, patients go to surgery, and if there is no response, patients go radiotherapy. A lot of tumor boards have this kind of management. Mm-hmm. And I'm always puzzled to see, well, it's so close. Why, why we have so different views on, uh, I mean, I, my take is usually when you are chemosensitive, you're expected to be radiosensitive. So it's, it's, it's quite funny. So the, the beautiful uh, thing in medical oncology, you can 
right. you can compare. But I'd actually heard that the origin of having pulmonologists be the, the main practitioners treating lung cancer comes from a time when lung cancer was just starting to be treated. There were such ineffective treatments that the oncologists said it wasn't worth bothering with and yes. it was left to the pulmonologist. No, no. Uh, well, anyway, medical oncology is quite a new discipline. Yes. I mean, pulmonologists were there for centuries, where medical oncologists, it's, it's a few decades. Mm -hmm. So it's also linked to that. There were, there were no medical oncologists before. But it's, it's true, it's really come from history, it's the, 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 the lung cancer patients stayed in the uh, pulmonology world. But it's, I think it's, it's changing a bit now, now that medical oncology get excited by lung cancer. When I start my training uh, and I was appointed to lung cancer, so it was 2005, most of my colleagues said, well, you're punished <laughs> to lung cancer. I do breast. This is so much more interesting. And now it's maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe time of change. Well, we I, have TKI, I, maybe I, no therapy where. I think it's been very gratifying for the last 10 plus years in lung cancer, yeah. certainly. But interestingly as well, uh, it, France, I think, has been really at the forefront of uh, doing comprehensive molecular testing and running trials based on those results. In the U.S., even though we've had great successes with some leading centers, it's very challenging to bring that out to the broader communities. Uh, is it executed as well in France, maybe because it's smaller and more patients are captured, or, or do you have the same challenges of getting testing done in the broader world outside of the leading centers? So it's, it's not uh, an issue of size of the country, it's an issue of politics. Mm. So we test 100% of lung cancer in France because it was a political decision at the beginning. So th there are some countries where, let's say, the initiative will be led by individuals or, or, or institutions and there are countries where the government decide everybody should be tested because we should all be equal in front of the disease. So the French NCI decided with the government in 2006 to start a national program and it's so cost effective. I mean the amount of money they put is like peanuts compared to what's um, for example, the, this panel that you can buy from companies' costs. So it, it was very simple. They said, well, we want everybody to be tested. We already have a lot of labs, uh, usually based in a university hospital or a cancer center that run tests. So let's make a call and who want to be a platform from our national networks? And some of the existing platforms applied, and, when the, and then the NCI said, okay, we, we will give a label to 28 platforms that are across all the countries. And each hospital is linked to a platform. So when there is a diagnosis, either in the private uh, setting or in uh, uh, the public setting, 
all the samples go to one of the 28 platforms. And it's so simple. And the beauty of that is that all the platforms that are labeled each three months, they give back to the health ministry how many samples they screened and the results. So we have a kind of, um, we, we have looked back at the data for the last five years, more than, um, it, it was the number, the exact number I think is 114,000 patients were screened for almost nothing because the cost is, is so low because the infrastructure is shared usually with the cancer center and all the new university hospital. So it was just this a political decision. So it's as simple as that. And this, this is, I don't like so much politics, but there is a few beautiful things in, in politics and, and this is what you can do. It seems to me that the, that the French centers and investigators are also very collaborative and collegial in looking at data, both in terms of retrospective and prospective trials and running studies not just at one institution, but as a multi-institutional approach. Uh, and that may be fostered by the same kind of uh, mentality as the molecular testing, making it easier to do a lot of work on, on, a, on a national level. Uh, is, is that your sense as well, that you're, you're working as part of a broader thoracic oncology network in France? Yes, or? yes, we, we, we can say that. Uh, the, the, let's say the, the, the bigger uh, promoter of uh, academic studies is, is a very large French intergroup called IFCT. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's true that within this intergroup there are a lot of initiatives and, 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 and a lot of very, very nice uh, uh, studies. Um, and, and yes, well, there are, I think, I think also it's, we, we have a lot, well, we, we, let's say we are friends mm -hmm. and there are some degree of competition, but probably less than in other countries. And, um, I think it's, it's more that it's, but to be honest, uh, we work with some uh, U.S. colleagues mm -hmm. that have exactly this, this same uh, view. mindset. Mm -hmm. I, I'm also impressed that you have collaborated like with Memorial Sloan Kettering on the steroid work and, and that was published and I think has had an impact. Can you talk about what you take away from that analysis? Because certainly there's some question, some controversy about whether it is uh, significant that steroids lead to worse outcomes or the issues that needed steroids lead to worse outcomes. What's your interpretation and how does this affect how you practice? Well, the, the study was, that we published was needed, but I fully agree that the main message that most people take from that is, oh, it's bad to give steroids. Uh, I think there is there is probably some degrees of uh, interaction between steroids and immunotherapy, for sure. But the people that need steroids, this is what you said, the people that need steroids because of pain, because of shortness of breath, because uh, 
uh, brain metastasis. Well, all, all this indication, it means aggressive disease. And will, with all these, there is also the, 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 you know, the story about hyperprogressive disease. We know that there is a pattern, but we can't yet say which pattern. There is a pattern with aggressive disease where immunotherapy is probably not a good idea. And it's, it's probably huge tumor burden, aggressive disease, and this patient has surgery usually. When, when there is an aggressive pattern or a very large tumor burden, usually you need surgery. So I do think that the, uh, the take of the paper should be that people that require surgery have more aggressive disease and they are less uh, prone to respond to, to, to immunotherapy and moreover, their prognostic is worse. And I think what we show is much more prognostics, like a predictive effect. Anyway, we don't have a control group, so we can't show any predictive effect. So I think it's much more on the prognostic side than on the predictive side. And there is a new paper published in GCO that showed the same thing, but they, were, they, were, they, they, they went more in depth uh, in the analysis and they say, is the steroids prescribed for the disease or for something else? And when it for for the disease, the, the, the outcome was worse. When it was for something else, it's, it's, uh, it, it was not an issue and they had the same outcome. Well, it's interesting. I think one of the messages that some of us took is that in places where we have a very low threshold for giving steroids, for improving energy or appetite, if you don't need to do that, it's probably not a good idea. Uh, so at least use it sparingly. But, uh, sure. Uh, let's also talk about hyperproliferative disease. You did some of the earliest work that, that really contributed to this concept. It remains a pretty controversial one. Yes, it's still controversial, but uh, there is, um, let's say, when, when we published the work, uh, on the pharma side, people were usually very reluctant with the concept of hyperprogressive disease because when you develop a drug and someone shows that it can have the opposite effect that one you expect, is, it's not that it doesn't work, it's, it's, it's worse the, the disease. It's true that it's complicated, but I think now there is a general agreement that at least a proportion of patients have absolutely no benefit. So you can call it hyperprogressive disease or you can say total lack of benefit. You know, there is <laughs> various terms to, to call that, but it's recognized that there is uh, uh, part of the patients that have no benefit. What, what, what is clear is that, uh, and at this conference there was four posters on that, and they're all fine between 10 and 20% of hyperprogressive disease. And, from, from, I mean, from Asian centers or, or Canadian centers. So this is something that people see clearly. Uh, to really uh, uh, be affirmative that there is an hyperprogressive disease, you need two CT scans before immunotherapy. So all these randomized trials of single agent immunotherapy in second line had only the baseline CT scan. So in any study like OAK or Checkmate uh, O57, you can't appreciate what is the 
percentage of hyperprogressive disease because we, you don't have these two CT scans. This is the main issue. And in the first line setting, usually you don't have two CT scans before you start the chemo. So it's still, it's still, we, we still don't have a very simple definition of uh, how you can uh, find your hyperprogressive disease patient with only a baseline CT scan. And since we don't have any biological biomarker, it's, we, 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 we have no way today to say, oh, be careful with this patient, the right. disease should, should explode on immunotherapy. But you've done some of the early work looking at uh, prognostic or predictive indices, like uh, the lung immune uh, predictive index. Uh, are you using anything like that, or do you see, uh, do you hope to in incorporate something like that to differentiate patients who should not get first-line immunotherapy? So the LIPI, so this index is, is based on a ratio between neutrophile and, uh, and, uh, and leukocytes. So this is from the host. It gives you a flavor of what the, is the inflammation status of the patient. Mm -hmm. And then you have the LDH that is, let's say, a rough representation of the tumor burden. In all the disease, when LDH is high, it means that you have more uh, cancer in the body. So it's, it's a nice uh, index because it has the host and the tumor, and it's clearly prognostic. It's poorly predictive. It is a bit uh, predictive. The, the, the nice thing with LIP is that uh, the FDA run the LIP on more than 4,000 patients right. randomized in trial. And this is something I didn't know. In fact, the FDA, they kept all the data of randomized trial and they can run their internal biomarker, which is, which is I think, very, very clever. But, right. um, and, and on all these second line study with single agent immunotherapy, it was very clear that LIP was highly prognostic. The predictive effect was more balanced probably um, uh, probably it's it's still prognostic uh, for the patient with uh, with very bad LP so with high LDH and, and, and DNLR there is more than three but um, we all this hyperprogressive disease and LP was done with single agent immunotherapy now we move to chemo IO combination it seems that there is no hyperprogressive disease with chemo-IO combination, and we are, uh, we are analyzing LIP in this population. It will probably be prognostic yet. But uh, yeah, the paper I think you're referring to by the FDA is by Kazanjian and colleagues in JAMA Oncology just came out, and it, it was interesting because it showed not only does it uh, serve as uh, prognostic in immune therapy studies, but it also worked for chemotherapy and even targeted therapies. So not clear that it was that discriminatory as much as just predicting who's going to do well or not, regardless of the treatment. So interesting. Anyway, thank you so much for taking the time. Quite interesting. Very welcome. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.